right, church, if you would turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23, we are going to read from verse 8 all the way through um, the end of the chapter, which is verse 39. It says here, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had, uh, Josheb, Bathshebeth, a Tekemite, Tekemanite. Uh, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohai, who was with David when they defiled the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his, his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty uh, chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. And when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephim, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, that is, by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, and drew out water of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty as he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. He had struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand but Benaiah went down to him with the staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and one in name beside the three mighty men. The, the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguards. Asahel, the son of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah of Herod, Elika of Herod, Helis, the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ikish, of Tekoa, Abiezer of Anathoth, Mabunai, the Hushathite, Zalman, the Ahoathite, Mahariah, the uh, Mahariah of Natopha, Heleb, the son of Baena of Natopha, Ittai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin, Bananiah of Pirathon, or Pyrathon, Hittai of the brooks of Gaash, Abi Alban, the, the Arbathite, um, Asmethbeth of Behirim, uh, Eliba, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jason, Jonathan, Shammah, and the Shammah the Heretite, Hiam, the son of Sherar, the Hererite, uh, Eliphalet, the son of Ashabi, or Shabai of, Me of Meica, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileanite, Hezro of Karma, Peirai, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Nehariah of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Irithite, or the Ithrite, uh, Gareb, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite. 37 in all. <laughs> uh, 
I saw this text coming. And uh, last Sunday after I preached, I was like, oh, no, it's, it's here. So I, I will tell you that if I, back in the day, whenever um, I started to preach, I, I preached topical sermons. Uh, so that meant I get to pick the topic and the passage that I preached on every single week. I guarantee if I still preached topical sermons, I would have looked at this verse and I would have said, the Lord does not want me to preach on this verse today. I would have skipped over it. But you don't have that advantage if you're uh, preaching uh, through the Bible, through letters. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a great challenge, but it's, it's a great text for us today. Um, when you look at a text like this, uh, maybe you question, like, what, what can we learn from it? There's, there's much to be learned from it, actually. Uh, we have to remember that every bit of God's word is breathed out by him, right? And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, uh, for correction, and also for training in righteousness. And there's a purpose behind God's word, every bit of it, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's our purpose today as we dig into this passage. Uh, this passage in particular helps us to see the need we all have for community. Uh, for we, It's the F word that you hear a lot around here. Not the bad one, but the good one, fellowship, right? That's what we need more of. We need fellowship. That's community. Um, so it, it teaches us the need that we all have for that. The main focus of this passage, obviously, is the mighty men of David. But if you're looking for something that is overarching, the overarching purpose of this passage, it points us back to the eternal king of glory. It points us back to Christ. It points us back to God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It points us back to him because he is the one who gave these men to David and also empowered them to do the things that they were called to do. Without God, you take God out of the equation, you, you have no mighty men. And that's the wonderful story that we have even today. God is the one who empowers us and helps us and calls us, and he does all these wonderful things in us. And you take God out of the equation, and we're nothing. We're like dust, right? So that's, that's the overarching thing that we see. But yes, the focus is on these mighty men and, and these men who were a part of David's army. Thing is, though, when we talk about who God is and he's the one who calls and empowers and, and gives the ability to, uh, to do what we do, he is the same God today. He provides workers for the harvest and he also equips them for the work so that they do not become desperate uh, and also so that they are not alone. Uh, the, the same God who was working in these mighty men works in us. Is it different? Yes, of course it's different. Uh, in many ways, it's different. But our circumstances are different, and we'll talk about that. But yet, it's the same God who empowers us uh, to do great things. So let's look at this passage. And as we're looking at this passage, I want us to consider the importance of having one another. Uh, the person next to you, the person in front of you, behind you. Uh, you. You don't just go to church together. You are an extended family. We are a spiritual family. And that's very important for us to realize, that that our bond is is, is a lot more than just knowing one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So this passage helps us to understand the importance of having one another to minister to and also to be ministered to. It goes both ways, and that's the, that's the wonderful thing about it. Uh, first, let's look at David's mighty men. This passage counts a total of 37 men. Uh, now, this is just a, a, a list of all the men throughout David's lifetime. This is not a current list of those who are alive, because we see several that are, that are not alive. Asahel was one of them, remember, who was killed in battle. Um, so these are the mighty men who were present within David's lifetime. It looks like they were, if they died, they were replaced, you know, but these men were renowned men, uh, and, and they were David's best soldiers. Uh, and, and, of course, they helped him throughout his lifetime. They helped him to become the king he was. He was a great and wonderful, powerful king but he would have been nothing without these men. So uh, we don't have time to go over all 30 or 37 of them, and I don't have the patience to try to pronounce all the names to you again. But I think going over the three, the three that, that are mentioned in, in the text in the beginning kind of gives us a glimpse and tells us about who these mighty men were and then some things that we can learn from them. Uh, the, the Bible separates three men and calls them the three, basically, or the three mighty men. Uh, Joseph Bathshebeth says that he was the chief of the three. So he was the one who was uh, in charge of the three. Looks like 
what's, what's interesting about this whole thing is that you look at the life of David and those who were close to him, it, 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 it kind of shadows and mimics Jesus and, and his disciples. Uh, and, and also Jesus within the 12, he had, he had the four that were close to him. And, and really in scripture, you see the three that were close to him, um, Peter, James, and John. And then Andrew is in, in and out of that group as you, see, as you go along. Well, in the same way, David had these three that were his inner circle, so to speak. And uh, of those three, uh, Joshua Bathshebeth was uh, the chief of those three. And he, uh, I, I, this, is, this is his highlight reel, if you, if, if, so to speak. He was the chief of the mighty men who killed 800 men with the spear at one time. Okay, So I, I can see why he was amongst the three and why he was the chief of the three. 800 men. What we have to remember is that when we look at a passage like that, we're thinking, like, that's impossible. That's physically impossible for any man to kill that many men. But we have to go back to the fact that it's God who was empowering these men to do these things. Right? That if, if we look at the life of Paul, we would say everything he did was impossible. But yet it's the spirit of God who was empowering Paul. Right? So if you look at your life and if you humble yourself enough, you'll realize that a lot of the things that you do would be impossible for you without God. But it's the same God who empowers us to do the things that we do. So this 800 men with a spear at one time, yeah, it's impossible for man, but not, but not for the Lord. Anything is possible for the Lord. So we see the Lord working him in a mighty way, and that's why he's one of the three. Eleazar, uh, he fought off the Philistine army, and he did it by himself. The reason why he did it by himself is because the armies of Israel had retreated, and he fought off and, and killed them all. In fact, Scripture says that when the army of Israel came back, they didn't have to fight anymore. They just basically uh, collected everything after, uh, after all the Philistines were, were dead. So he fought so long and so hard that Scripture says that his hand was frozen to his sword, and uh, his actions led to a victory of Israel. Shammah, uh, he was like Eleazar. He fought against the Philistines while basically everybody else retreated. And he led Israel to a great victory. Now, I, I go over those three and, and, and tell you kind of, you know, their highlight reel as scripture presents it. Because we all know it's well documented that David pretty much got credit for building a vast army. Scripture says it several times in First and Second Samuel that he was focused on building this army. Um, and, and, and it was a great army. Uh, they, they, were, uh, they basically defeated all of their enemies, north, south, east, and west. Uh, no one could come against them. Uh, they, they, were, they had Jerusalem. They had this fortified city. They had this uh, huge, strong army. They were a force to be reckoned with. And David gets credit for a lot of that, um, for defeating all his enemies around him. But none of that would have happened without the help of these mighty men. These men were so powerful and they were so dedicated that they propelled David to the great king that he was. Uh, within this text, there is a story and this story is very purposeful. In fact, right before we get into the listing of all their names, there is a story of the three mighty men in verses 13 through 17 that kind of give us a picture of, of their of, of, of their braveness, but also their, their loyalty and their dedication to David. This verse, or these verses here, this story, they teach us what all these men were basically made of. Because if you look at what these three were made of and what they did, it was no different than what these others would have done. Uh, these were, they were made up of the same thing, all these, all these men, these 37 men. But I like what Robert Bergen puts in his commentary, and I'm going to paraphrase what he has here. As I was studying along, I, I, I've been using Robert Bergen's uh, commentary on 2 Samuel, and he points out some very interesting things uh, about this text that really bring the reality out for us. Uh, in verses 13 to 17, he says this, that this was one of David's more difficult encounters with the Philistines. And this story focuses on that encounter. David and a few men basically were confined to the cave of Adullam. That's where it talks about in verse 13. Their escape was blocked by a band of Philistines. So they were, they were trapped in a cave. Uh, they were in, these Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephim, uh, of Rephim. Now, 
basically to taunt David and to motivate him to come out of the cave, basically his stronghold, the Philistines stationed uh, and occupied a force at Bethlehem, David's hometown. So they, they, they had David trapped in a cave, and then they also set up a band of, uh, of an army uh, in Bethlehem to try to draw David out to come and protect his people. So you get a scene of David's hopelessness. Uh, he's trapped in a cave. Uh, in that cave, there is no water supply. Uh, there, there, there's nothing that they really need to continue to survive. There's a limited amount of food, only what they had with them. And so they're fighting this Philistines trapped in a cave, trying to get out, trying to get to Bethlehem to, to save the people there, to save the city. And as there is no natural water supply, David becomes thirsty. And somehow he expresses, uh, basically he expresses his desire. There is no proof or anything that this was a command. Obviously, it was not a command uh, because he was, he was very surprised that his men did what they did. But he expressed a desire, perhaps nothing more than a wish, uh, for someone to fetch him a drink of water. In, in, in the whole act of fighting, he probably said, I'm dying of thirst, or I am so thirsty. I wish we had more water, just, just something like that. Um, there was water, but it was by Bethlehem. Right. That's where the nearest water supply would be. That's verse 15. Well, that's more than 12 miles away. Now, when you look at these three mighty men, they heard their king say that he was thirsty and that he wished he could drink some water. Now, living up to their reputation, basically of being fearless, um, full of faith or maybe maybe even arrogant uh, a little bit. Um, The three mighty men in verse 16 left David of the care of the other men who were with him, uh, and they basically went and fought their way from the cave through the Philistine army all the way through Bethlehem, which was 12 miles away. Well, you go one way, you're going to have to turn around and come the other way. So you're fighting to go out 12 miles, you get the water, and you turn around and, and turn around and come back and fight your way back in the cave. Right? So that's, that was what they did. Now, you, you think about that. They didn't do that to escape. They had the opportunities. Three men, this is a vast army of the, of the Philistines. They're fighting their whole way. They grab the water, and they come back, and they're doing all this so that David could have a drink of water. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm sitting there in the living room, and I ask my kids if they can give me some water, and they give me some attitude, and it's just a couple of steps away. David just says, hey, I'm thirsty. I wish I had some water. These guys are like, oh, I know what we're going to do. We're going to fight 12 miles, go get our king some water, and then come right back. And, 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 and he'll have it. Now, that is amazing. Just, just seeing uh, the detail there in Scripture and pulling that out so that it's understandable to us. Because if we read that, it's kind of like confusing a little bit. But if we get a picture of what these men did... They come back, they're like, here, King David, here is the water, and David doesn't even drink the water. Why? Because he felt terrible that the men risked their lives so that he could have a drink of water. I don't know about you, but if that were me, I'm like, you are drinking that water. Either you're going to drink it, or we're going to pour it on you something. Somehow, it is going to refresh you, because I have to have purpose for what I just did. And so, It's an amazing story. David basically was convicted to the heart that these men would risk their lives to go get him some water, and he poured it out to the Lord. He couldn't even even fathom their commitment to him, their dedication to him. Now, this one act here encapsulated the toughness and the commitment, not only of these three, but who you needed to be in order to be considered a mighty man are a mighty man. It was an exclusive group, no doubt called, called by David to fulfill this office. But a group that was empowered by God to do wonderful and mighty things, things that were beyond them, things that showed the power and the glory of God. See, this is what these mighty men were made of. And that's why when you look at that, it's, it's, it's amazing to see what David, what God had surrounded David with. 
These men were the cream of the crop. Yes, it took David years to build an army. And that army was solid, but only because its core was solid. Only because the mighty men stood in the center of that army and they provided the leadership. They provided the example. They provided the service. They provided all these things to the rest of his army. And when you have a core like that, man, that is very valuable because that resonates throughout the army. There are plenty of reasons to admire these men. But if, if it's, and you have to be careful because the whole saying, I don't know when it started, but what would Jesus do, right? That was probably in the 80s or maybe even the 90s. A lot of you would remember that. There's a coffee cup, what would Jesus do? And, you know, the whole, the whole objective of that movement was for you to think about before you did something, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, you really could not apply that to the mighty men in today's world, right? What would David's mighty men do? Like, if you ask yourself that question, because things were different back then, right? Uh, the other day I was driving to the gym. It's early in the morning, and I'm driving down the road, and I see something in the middle of the road, and it looks like a person. They're wearing all black, and they're running down the middle of the road. And so I, I slow down, but I keep going. And sure enough, it's this young man who's running down the middle of the road, and then I'm getting closer to him. It's, it's a street. It's a street for vehicles, not for somebody to be running down the middle of the road at, at 4.30 in the morning. And as I get closer, the guy gets really upset. And he turns around, and I have my window down a little bit. Well, he starts to hurl insults at me, driving down, and he moves out of the way like, like I'm driving in the sidewalk or something. And I'm really confused about the whole thing because, like, he, he's really upset that I'm driving in my lane where I'm supposed to be, and it's looked like I'm, I'm interrupting his day. So he starts to hurl insults at me, and for a split second, I thought, maybe I should stop and tell this guy he's in the middle of the road. I'm where I'm supposed to be. He's not where he's supposed to be. In that situation, I couldn't ask myself, what would David's mighty men do? Right? Because if, if you think about what they would do, I, I remember Abishai. Remember Abishai when Shemaiah was, was cursing David? What did he tell David? He says, why do you let this dog curse you? Let me go over there and take his head off. And <laughs> That wouldn't apply to today's world, would it? I... I so, so we have to be careful because of what they did. It was a different time. It was a different law. Um, obviously, the circumstances were different. But listen, the principle of what, what drove them and the principles that they practice are important to note. Yes, their ability to fight was, was awesome. Their courage was a great example. But... but this is, for me, as I look at this passage and as I think about these men, I think about their dedication and I think about their motives. What empowered them to do what they needed to do? Because obviously these men could have done other things. But there was a love that was driving them that I think is important for us to realize. And, and if you look at this love, they served David faithfully as the Lord's anointed. That's the first thing. They understood who David was. They understood that he was the king of Israel, that he was chosen by God to fill this seat. And so they respected him. They served him. He was set apart by God for this office. And so they were committed to David for that reason. They lived their lives for a cause larger than themselves. They could have done things for themselves. They could have dedicated their lives to building up their own empire, but yet they dedicated themselves to the kingdom of God, to the king. They understood that as Israel prospered, so did their king. And as their king prospered, so did their God. I think that's important. That's something that we can surely learn from them. Ultimately, they lived to bring honor and glory to God. They served God by serving the king and whatever they were directed to do. Their dedication to David was basically out of reverence for the Lord. Now, all of this should sound very familiar to us. Why? 
Because this is the way that we are commanded as the church to live in the New Testament. A lot of these principles that they have, it, these things are repeated by, by, by Paul, by Peter, by John, of, of how we should be as, as, as an army of God, as a family of God, as a priesthood of God. See, what the church needs today are a few good men and women who are committed to living according to the same godly standards that we see before us in our text today. Men and women who are willing to serve others, not for their own gain, but out of reverence for Christ. That they understand it's not that the person deserves it, but they serve because they have been called to serve. They serve because Christ has died for them. They serve because that is what they have been commanded to do in Scripture. Also, men and women who live their lives for a cause larger than themselves. And what is that cause? What is the kingdom of God? It goes beyond them. That's what the church needs today. The church needs men and women who are focused, or whose focus is for the Lord to be glorified, not themselves. What the church needs today, and ultimately what it needs, is men and women who fear God and who keep his commandments. That's what the church needs. Now, this type of mentality begins within the family structure by everyone, not only the mother and the father, but this standard must be upheld by the mother and by the father within the family structure so that even the kids understand these godly principles and understand this is what they are called to do. I think that is our biggest battlefield because what we have in the family structure now is we have our kids learning from the world and the world is teaching them, live for yourself. The world is teaching them, build your own kingdom. The world is teaching them, you're your own island. You can do this. You, you have everything you need within you to be your own person. Well, as Christian parents, we need to come along and show them you are nothing without God. We need to show them your life is beyond you. It, it, you are connected to God's greater church. You are a member of something that is very special. You are living for the Lord to minister to the church. It's not all about you. That's what we need to do as parents. So it starts there within the family structure, but then it bleeds into the church to where all the members are serving one another. There is humility. There is unity. There's all these things that they're supposed to be in the church and not things that they're not supposed to be. So looking at these biblical principles and even seeing them in the New Testament, this directs us on how we should have fellowship, how we are to live with each other, because that's what fellowship is. There's a lot of confusion about fellowship, that it's basically how the time that we spend together or it's just talking in church or having a meal together. Fellowship is doing life together as a church. That's what we are called to do. If you're not willing to do life together as a church, then you're really not willing to be part of God's church because that's what he has called us to do. Again, I'll keep on saying that. So <clears throat> this type of mentality, again, begins with the family, pours itself out to the family of God. When the members of the church commit themselves to live for the Lord, we see that the blessings are enormous. There is an example, a basically it's a biblical, um, it's a biblical illustration that is given to us in Acts chapter 4. It says, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. There is unity. Um, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. I'll use that as an illustration, uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 33, because within this biblical illustration, we see a picture of a healthy church. We see unity, we see humility, we see charity, and we see it binding them all together in love. Now, we also see that when the word was given, grace abounded upon them all. 
See, the Holy Spirit was not quenched by their sins. Rather, it was well-received. The word was well-received. And as a result of it being well-received, grace fell upon them all. As I read that passage, it makes me wonder how much of our decisions are affected by disunity. How much our decisions are affected by pride and by selfishness. Like, do we seriously make a, a life decision thinking about our brothers and sisters in Christ? I, I guarantee you, we, we don't do that as often as we should. Right? Because we, we're thinking, okay, wait a second. I, I'm, I'm, let's just talk about a financial decision. You're thinking, it's me and my family, and, and, and that's what's important. That's what I have to figure out. What's important for me and my family? But do we think about... What's important for the kingdom of God when it comes to my time, my finances, my talents? Am I thinking about that or am I just thinking about me and those who are closest to me? Now, the biggest problem with us thinking about the bigger umbrella, the, the, the church at large, is because we know deep down in our hearts, the church is not thinking about us. Right? Right? When it all said and done, it's like, well, these people wouldn't do this for me. Why am I going to do this for these people? Again, we're putting circumstances there that shouldn't be there. We are to do all things out of reverence for Christ. Plain and simple. That's the hardest command to follow. Because you're not doing it because somebody deserves it. God said you're just doing it because I deserve it. You're doing it out of sacrifice for me. I see these things. I will reward you. I see all things. I even see your motives. Don't worry about that. Just do these things but you have been, because you have been called to do them. But yet, we're thinking, you know, our thinking is affected by disunity. About, it's, it's affected by pride, about selfishness. But if we are going to grow in fellowship, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be because we should be walking towards unity. Humility, charity, that is a difficult thing, and it takes a long time for a church to mature in those things. A lot of churches pride themselves on a lot of different things, but in reality, you see the, the healthiness of a church and how its members interact with one another. Not in, yeah, it's a good sign for there to be good preaching, good teaching, solid music. That, those are all great signs. But how are the people obeying what they're hearing? How are the people uniting themselves together? That takes a long time. And, and, and that is hard work, not only by the pastors, but it's hard work by everybody. You know why? Because that takes commitment. You're going to sin. You're going to be sinned against. And you have to forgive. And over and over and over Build these relationships. Build trust again. You're going to have to be involved in repentance. It's all dirty and it's icky. And, and, and a lot of people don't want to put up with that. They just want to stay in one place until it's good. And then it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to get out of that. And then I'm going to get into something else. But that's not the church that we are called to be. We are called to be united. We are called to be have this intimate relationship, to fight for one another, to have this bond that is unbroken. So yes, it, it makes me wonder how much of our decisions are affected by disunity, by pride, and by selfishness. The thing is, is that we are all called to live for one another. And the purpose behind that has to be the Lord. And as I look at this passage today with David and his men, that's, that's what I see. I see men who are living beyond themselves are for a purpose beyond themselves. They're, hang, they're, they're, they're hanging it all out there. Think about it. those three men to go and it sounds ridiculous to us, but for them to leave the safety of their stronghold to go and get a glass of water or a cup of water or whatever and bring it back just so that their king could have a drink of water. It shows the commitment they had for God. Now, the list of David's mighty men goes on and on and on, and obviously we don't have time to cover all 
of them, but I, I think we get the point. The fact is, is that we were created in the image of God to serve him and each other. I think there's some confusion when it comes to serving God. I think all of us are on board with, yes, I'll serve God, but when we serve God, it means that we're serving one another. You can't do one without the other. See, he has gifted each one of us. We are unique. He has given us precious spiritual gifts so that we can use it to minister to one another. And the spiritual growth and strength of each member are dependent on the nourishment they receive from the body that they are united to. I'm going to pull an example out of scripture, and many of us know this illustration very well. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we are the body of Christ. Listen to this as Paul speaks about this. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Beautiful passage. Shows us our unity, what we're called to, what we're made up of. Now, verses 18 and 20 say this. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them. As he chose, uh, if all were a single member, excuse me, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Then we skip down to verse 24 to 26. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Then he says in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I've been a Christian since 1996. In that time, I have been a member of three churches. I have never been part of a church where this is practiced all the time, even most of the time. And I've been here for 21 years. Yes, there are times in the life of our church where people come together. And there's this beautiful unity and there's this giving and there's this humility and there's this people are praying for one another, hugging on one another, crying together. But it usually takes something very tragic for that to happen. Most of the time, it's not that way. For the first six years here, I was the youth pastor. Well, not the whole six years. First four years, I was a youth pastor, associate pastor in 2006. So I started to see a little bit of what went on within church life. But yet there was still this there were still things hidden that I didn't see all the time. 2008 came and I was called to be the interim pastor of the church. Haven't left since. The curtain was open. And, and, and you, you think you're just naive to the fact you think everybody gets along. Yeah, you do. You think every, oh, the sister so-and-so, she's so sweet. Brother so-and-so, he's so kind. You think everybody gets along until the curtain is opened up. You become, at, at, back then I was the only pastor here. You become the pastor and you start to be able to hear everybody's problems. Or really everybody's complaints. Eyes are open and you start to realize this church is not as united as I thought it was. Happens all the time. Still happening today. Some reasons, yeah, I, I can see why there's division. I can see why there's issues. But we're called to repent and forgive and there's reluctance to do that. Some things are very petty, very petty. I want to tell people, grow up. 
And a lot of these people are older than I am. We're losing focus of what's important, what we are called to. We are called to unity. We're called to humility. We're called to love. We are called to these things for a greater purpose. We are called to do all these things out of reverence for Christ. Now, I I can't imagine pastoring a church that had 800 members or even more and how much you have to deal with. I guess the saving grace there is that you have so many different ministers to kind of divide and conquer. But we're about 100 people here, and it's tough. And I have to be honest with you, years and years and years of dealing with some of the same things, some of the same people over and over and over, it wears on you. As a person, it wears on you. But that's where I have to rely on Christ. And I thank God I'm not the only one now. I have Pastor Laramie, I have Pastor David, I have Brother Lee, I have so many more that we get to share this, 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 this burden together. But I, I want to tell you, I don't want you to be naive about our situation It's not all fun and games right now. Not everybody is united. Not everybody is moving towards the same goal. Not everyone has Christ in mind. And that, not only am I talking about you guys, I struggle with that as well. We need to go back and remember to what we are called. We are called to serve each other out of reverence for Christ. And that is not an easy thing to do. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience. It is something that goes beyond us. We are not capable of doing this. Like the mighty men, we're going to have to rely on God to give us what we need when we need it. Now, as you look at what our, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the very last thing that Paul says there, he says, he calls the church the body. He says, now you are the body of Christ. Like he gives this illustration. At the very end, he says, yeah, I'm really not talking about a body. I'm talking about you. You are the body of Christ and you are individual members of it. That last indicative should pierce our hearts. When we hear, you are the body of Christ, that means we're being called to something very specific. It means that you belong to something larger than yourself. When Paul says, you are the body of Christ, it means that although you are unique, you are to be united with other members. When Paul says you are the body of Christ, it means that you are to submit to the head, which is Christ. And he is the one who controls the whole body. Now, within the people we have here who are listening to me today, we have, we have a various amount of people, a lot of different people who are going through different things. Right now, there are Many who are scared to commit yourself to church, just church in general. Maybe you've been through some things with some previous churches or you're just hard. It's hard for you to trust anybody. But. Maybe you're afraid because of the sacrifice. It would cause you to make. Maybe you're afraid because you don't want to sacrifice your time, your talents and your treasures to where they need to be. Maybe your priorities are wrong. Maybe you think these are mine to enjoy and solely mine and not to share with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, on the other side, many of you are tired. You're like me. You're tired. You're spiritually tired. You're physically tired. You're tired of overworking. And you're thinking, why? 
Why should I continue to do this? I said before, I feel you. Because that's something I always struggle with. Whatever camp you're in, let's consider the mighty men of David within the context of our lives today. Yeah, we may not be called to go and fight a physical war and and kill 800 men. But we are fighting a spiritual war. And wherever you are in the two examples that I gave, there's many, many more. We're not told by God to just give up. It's okay. Give up because it's hard. In fact, we're told the opposite. We are told that as we fight this spiritual battle, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That goes to every single one of us. If you go through difficulty, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. If you're feeling burnt out and and you, you feel like you can't serve much longer, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. If you're struggling with a lack of faith, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. See, the last thing we must consider in this verse, or actually the second to last thing, because there's one more thing that I want to tell you about and one more thing that we need to see in this verse. But is that as we do life together, What we are called to do, we are incapable of doing it by ourselves. That's why we need God to empower us. It's the fruit of the Spirit that works in us. That's the outcome of what we do. It's going to take everything of, it's going to take everything of who you are. It's going to push you to the limits. It's going to drive you crazy sometimes, but yet through it all, the Lord is going to compel you to continue to do what you do every single day. That is the beautiful thing about it. That when, you're, when your life is over and, and, and you've walked in the ways of the Lord, you fear God, obey his commandments. Once they put that body in the casket, that body is going to be well used. It's going to be well used and the hope that you've had all your life is going to be fulfilled. You will be with the Lord. And that is far better than anywhere we could be on earth. One last thing, though. This is really interesting because we've been talking about how church life sometimes is ugly and relationships can be tough. And it takes forgiveness, it takes patience, it takes all kinds of different things. I don't know if you noticed, though, but let's go back to the mighty men. Look at verse 39. Who's listed there? The last one. The last mighty man listed in this passage is Uriah the Hittite. Very last one. He's another one that is gone, right? We know Asahel had died, but Uriah died. How did Uriah die? He died by the hands of David. David had him killed. Put him in the front lines where he knew he would die. David had him killed so that he could take his wife. Now you sit there and you think, well, that brother sinned against me. That sister sinned against me. Well, they didn't have you murdered. Not yet. You're still alive. But what's interesting about that passage is it shows you the ugliness of sin and what sin can do to relationships. Uriah was a dedicated, mighty man to David. He had already put his life on the line many, many times. And yet David saw Bathsheba, saw his wife, took her, had him killed. Yeah, it shows you how ugly sin can be and how sin will always exist in our fellowship. But it also shows you how careful we must be to subdue it. If we don't subdue it, if we don't fight against it, 
Sin will have us and it will destroy our relationships no matter how committed we are to each other right now. The person next to you, the person in front of you, the person behind you, they may be the best friend you ever had. They may be the closest brother and sister you've ever had. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Because in both of those, both of those will preserve you. If, if, if you give it a break, sin can come in and destroy that bond that you have. And think about this. The person who's sitting next to you may not be a brother, may not be a sister, but it's probably your spouse. How many times have we seen where sin comes into a family and just completely divides the family, breaks up the family, you can't get much closer than the relationship of a spouse. And yet, sin is always there crouching at our door. To that, I, I say we must be ready. We must clothe ourselves with Christ. We must walk in humility. We must always think of unity. We must always live for one another. We must be willing to forgive one another. And we must Always be willing to serve each other out of reverence for Christ. I think the principles of the mighty men are very, very important. And it's a good reminder for us today of the fellowship that we ought to have as God's church. Last thing I want to say is that if you have an issue with a brother or sister today, take care of it. Don't let it fester. I don't care if it's been 20 years or two minutes. Take care of it. Life's too short. Life's too short, and, and, and we have much more important things to be taking care of and doing. Let us pray.